This episode is sponsored by 511 Tactical, a company that I've used for around 14 years now and continue to use to this day. And they are offering you, the audience, a 15% discount, not on one purchase, but continuously. And I'll give you that code in just a moment. But I want to do a product showcase on their new Atlas sneakers and boots. So I'm a big believer in the fact that footwear can either improve our health or break down our health. And the Atlas sneaker actually has a new foam system that disperses the body weight, whether just the body weight, whether it's a a vest and a gun, whether it's EMS bags being carried. And on top of that, they're lightweight, despite having the same protection that's required in the tactical space. So I have a pair of Atlas sneakers myself, and I can attest they're extremely comfortable. On top of footwear, of course, 5.11 offers a gamut of uniforms and equipment, whether it's plate carriers, backpacks, flashlights, you name it, they have it. All you have to do is go to 5.11tactical.com and use the code SHIELD15. That's S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5 at 5.11tactical.com and you will save every time you purchase. And to learn more about the company 5.11 Tactical, You can listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 438 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show, Lawrence Gonzalez. Now, Lawrence is an author of multiple books, including Surviving Survival and Deep Survival, and has made his life's work studying many of the disasters that have taken people's lives, many of the survival stories of people that have escaped death, and many of the lessons learned from those and dealing with the trauma of the survivors of some of those. So there was so much to pull from his work, and we only scraped the surface, but it was an absolute honor to do so on my birthday as well. So before we get to that conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Each five-star rating truly elevates this podcast, making it more visible for others looking for a project like this. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you... Lawrence Gonzalez. Enjoy. So Lawrence, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. My pleasure. Now, I want to say a special thank you to uh, Canadian firefighter Lionel Crowther, who's a good friend of mine, um, who actually is a perfect example of many of the things that we're going to talk about. So how did you meet Lionel? Well, he got in touch with me. Um, The way that I got involved with the fire service to begin with um, internationally was that people read Deep Survival, and it turned out that firefighters were passing deep survival around among themselves and um, they started to get in touch with me. So whenever anybody from the fire service got in touch with me, I did everything I could to cooperate because I think these guys are great. Uh, You guys are great. I did um, an assignment some years back where I was taken into a firehouse in Chicago, right downtown, a big busy firehouse and allowed to essentially work with the firefighters and 
and live their life for a while. And then I wrote about it. Uh, and it's in my book that's called House of Pain. Um, it was published a few years ago. But that experience with the firefighters and especially the experience of being in a burning building in danger with these guys really left an impression on me because I realized that when I was in these burning buildings, I realized that if they got out, I would get out because they weren't going to leave me there. <laughs> and that's the kind of people they were. So when it came time to, when it came, came time that I was able to do something for them, I happily did it and I continue to do that. Beautiful. Well, I'm looking forward to exploring it because your work is pertinent to us in so many areas as far as the the level of training, the importance of stress um, amongst the training. You know, stress inoculation thinks the wrong word, but, you know, training under stress, um, dealing with an incident, you know, a near miss, as we call it, and, and learning from it and dealing with the trauma associated with it. So I'm very, very excited to, to kind of lead down this path with you today. Um, I love to start at the very beginning, though. So, firstly, chronologically, I mean, excuse me, on, geographically on planet Earth, where are we finding you today? I'm in the Chicago area. It's a city called Evanston, where Northwestern University is. And um, I've lived here most of my life. Um, I, um, I divide my time between here and Santa Fe now because of my relationship with the Santa Fe Institute. But this last year, of course, the institute has been closed, so I haven't. I've been here. Okay, yeah, I think that a lot of us have. Uh, sadly, there's good and bad, and you talk about this in you know in, in some of your most recent uh, interviews. But I agree 100. percent There's definitely some negatives, definitely some positives, and I want to kind of explore the the kind of um, efficiency side of, of what we pulled out. Um, but starting on your own timeline, so tell me where you were born, and then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did, and how many siblings. <coughs> So I was born in St. Louis. My my father was a combat pilot in World War II, and he came back as a wounded wounded veteran ex-POW. Um, and he went back to college because he was too uh, busted up in the war to uh, continue in the military. And so he went back to college and he became a scientist. He was always interested in science anyway. And he got his Ph.D. in St. Louis when I was five years old. And I was born in 1947. Um, and then he got his first job in Houston at the medical center there. And his family, of course, the name is Gonzalez. His family is from San Antonio and from Mexico. And the, most of the family was in San Antonio. So he wanted to be he wanted to be near them. And that's why we went back to Texas. So I grew up in Texas going to my father's lab and, and finding science very interesting. And I was particularly interested in uh, the science of human behavior. So my father was shot down over Germany in World War II and survived a fall of 27,000 feet without a parachute. Uh, this is this story is told in Deep Survival. It's a very interesting story. But as a little kid, hearing these things made me want to try to understand people better. It also interested me in aviation. And as as a young journalist being interested in aviation, I decided to write about airline crashes, 
which I thought were very interesting and were not very well explained. And so I began asking the question, like this pilot of this airliner flew his plane into the ground. There was nothing wrong with the plane. He just flew it into the ground by accident. So how can that possibly happen? This guy was an ex-military pilot. He had 30,000 hours. He had a master's degree in engineering. He was a real smart guy. How did he manage to do the stupidest thing you can do with an airplane? And the National Transportation Safety Board, which investigates these crashes, these guys would say to me, well, we don't know because uh, he's dead and we can't interview him. <laughs> and so so that to me became the most interesting question, which is like, what was he thinking? What was going on in his head? Well, long about the 1990s, uh, scientific material started to be published about things like magnetic resonance imaging, MRI, where you could look into somebody's brain and see what was going on under certain circumstances. So I began gobbling up this, this scientific literature and realized you actually could start to tell what people were thinking because you could look at their brains working. And through this, I gradually developed the um, analysis that you see in the book Deep Survival, where I talk about how people make these really dumb mistakes, but that it's not because they're stupid. It's because of the way this neurological system works. Yeah, and it's, it's absolutely fascinating. Again, you know, I, I implore people to read the book. I mean, I've, I've read the two back to back and can't wait to you know explore the other ones. But what like I said, the things that really jump out at me are, you know, the, 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 the training, the repetition, the stress, um, but also dealing with trauma. And that's something I've been exposed to a lot with this, this podcast. I mean, I'm over 400 episodes now, at least a quarter or a third are people with very traumatic stories, especially early in their life. So with your father surviving that and with him ending up in a POW camp, you know, obviously there's a lot of trauma there. With the knowledge you have now of, of post-traumatic stress, PTSD, what were some of the observations how he dealt with his particular um, you know, traumatic experience? Well, he was a pretty remarkable guy. And um, <clears throat> he had a number of strategies. Um, so when I was a little kid, I can remember him waking up in the middle of the night screaming. Um, so he did have some response to trauma, which seemed to go away. And this is not unusual, by the way. Not everyone who experiences trauma is sort of crippled for life. There's a whole spectrum of responses to trauma. And his was a fairly common one, which is you get real busy. And the thing that you are doing takes your mind off of the the anxiety that you might otherwise experience from the trauma. So I think my father did have certainly some elements of PTSD um, in his life after the war, but he was constantly at work doing interesting things and keeping himself busy, not only with his science, um, but he always had some project going. I can remember one summer he decided he wanted to understand the aerodynamics of boomerangs. And so we started making boomerangs in the garage. You know, he set up a whole workshop to make different kinds of boomerangs and we'd go out and fly them and he would study the 
aeronautical properties of these devices. Um, and he just never quit. He was always into something different and something new. Later in his life, he became a really expert potter. He bought a kiln and a potter's wheel and just turned out pottery like crazy. And I know that that was therapeutic for him. He was in the zone when he was doing his pottery and he got really good at it. And, um, and so one of the psychiatrists that I quote in the book Surviving Survival, which is about post-trauma, um, he dealt with a lot of people in war-torn countries where there would be genocide and things like that going on. And he said that dealing with the survivors, he would tell them, work, work, work. That's the answer. Get busy doing something you really love and just work at it all the time. And that really helps. And so um, – you know, I think I think that's been my philosophy. I took after him um, and and imitated him, I think. But I was always interested in a million different things and always getting involved with new projects. And of course, as a journalist, that's what you do. You know, you get into something, get really deep into it, you write about it, and then you go on to the next thing. Now, with him obviously surviving that crash, did he fly again, either as a pilot or a passenger? Uh, he flew as a passenger, sure. Yeah, he wasn't afraid to fly. Uh, I went back with him in 1988, I think it was. Um, went back to Germany where he was shot down. And um, the place he was shot down was a farmer's field uh, in, a in a little near a little town called Neuss. But it's now a big suburb of Dusseldorf. It's all grown up out there. And, um, and we went back there. And there were people there who remembered him and remembered his plane coming down, um, who were little kids at the time. And so we had a we had a, a nice long flight over there to Europe. Um, yeah, he didn't he didn't avoid flying. He didn't fly himself after the war as a pilot. Um, he flew a couple of Piper Cubs like right after the war, just for fun. But then he didn't go back to flying. Uh, I became a pilot, and he flew with me, though. <laughs> I took him up. I used to do aerobatics. <clears throat> but one of the things that I say about PTSD is that I don't like the D on the end because it stands for disorder. And the response to trauma is not a disorder. It's the natural way that our memory system works to protect us. So... I give this example. Um, I don't know if any of your listeners are members of the Rotary Club, but the Rotary Club publishes a magazine called The Rotarian. And if you're in the Rotary Club, you get this magazine. I published a little piece for them in February, I think it was, about resilience. And I tell a little story about a long time ago. This was decades ago, maybe 30 years ago. I was visiting a friend and staying in an unfamiliar bedroom and I got, I was getting ready for bed and I took my shirt off over my head and I stuck my hand in a ceiling fan and it, it hurt so much. I literally fell to the ground and cried out in pain. Um, it didn't break anything. I, my hand is fine now, but to this day, when I go to take my shirt off over my head, I have to look to check 
<laughs> my my wife makes fun of me. There's no ceiling fans here. <laughs> and and yet it's ingrained. It's an absolute reflex that I can't control. Um, well, that's the natural way the memory system works. So if you're traumatized, you're going to have that. And the psychiatrists call it PTSD, but I just call it post-traumatic stress because that's what it is. And oftentimes it's not even a stress. It's just a reflex. Like I don't feel particularly stressed when I take off my shirt, but I do check <laughs> just in case. Yeah. Well, and I can, I can relate completely. I think the disorder is, is, uh, you know, has, has been misunderstood, you know, and I, and I kind of, the way I look at it is like PTS is the normal stress, you know, that that we react to, and the disorder is if that starts owning you, if it starts, you know, crushing you mentally. But um, another area, and I'm curious about, you know, your perspective on this before we move through your childhood. Um, it seems like a common denominator in a lot of these conversations between someone who had acute trauma but was able just like you point in the book you know a couple of years they're able to move through it um, and deal with it and grow from it and the people that find themselves with you know a pistol in their mouth over and over and over again it's childhood trauma so they're thinking oh I, i'm suffering because i was in afghanistan as a marine and then you reverse engineer their lifeline and actually something horrific happened when they were eight and that was you know a, a more acute event than you know or it compounded the event that happened later with your father, did he did he talk fondly about his upbringing? Because it seems like a, a healthy upbringing is it creates a very good environment to process trauma. I believe what you're saying is absolutely true. My father, as far as I can tell, had a happy childhood. His parents, my grandparents, were very loving people. The home was, so far as I can tell, a happy home. Um. And certainly the things he told me as I was when I was a kid and growing up um, were happy memories for him. Uh, they were very poor, but they always had food to eat, clothes to wear. Um, and so, yeah, I think that imparts to you a resilience throughout life to where you can come back from trauma more easily. And conversely, if you have had a really traumatic childhood, I think it makes you more vulnerable later in life. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's – if that traumatic childhood is is processed through whatever healthy coping mechanism, whether it's psychology, whether it's equine therapy, whatever seems to resonate with you, I think those people can then become very resilient because they have grown from it. But if they don't address it and then they throw a uniform on, whether it's military or first responder – now we're we're more vulnerable to some of the things that we might encounter later on. Yes, and some of this is just biochemical too. An infant in the womb will pick up signals of stress from the mother in the form of a chemical called cortisol and learn from the mother, if the mother is under stress during pregnancy, that it's a dangerous world out there. And this translates into a child who is more easily disturbed growing up. See, that's interesting because if you think about a lot of these children that are brought up into addiction, you, you now can you take a step back and go, well, is it the actual chemical or is it the fact that addicts usually are living a pretty chaotic, dangerous life, in, in, in especially the ones that are living in the shadows, as it were? So that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, absolutely. 
All right. Well, then going back to your timeline then. So your dad was a World War II vet and a POW um, survivor. Um, what about your own childhood? Tell me about, were you a, a sportsman even when you were a child? Uh, no, not particularly. I, I was into music. Um, all of my family was musical. And early on, my brothers and I began playing instruments. And so one of my outlets and and part of the fun that I had as a child was playing music. And I actually um, became a professional musician. Uh, when I grew up, I actually dropped out of college to go play in a band traveling the country during the 60s, um, which was a nice thing to do when you're, you know, 19 years old. Um, not such a nice thing to do for your entire life, in my view. <laughs> and and so I, I left music eventually. And from a very early age, though, I wrote. I started writing stories. And oddly enough, they were survival stories. When I was about fourth grade, I think, my mother saved uh, the first story I ever wrote that, that had a coherent uh storyline to it and it was about a kid getting chased by a crocodile um and and so i <laughs> i had this i think it you know from my father's experience i had this thing about survival um because it was always a deep mystery why he survived falling twenty seven thousand feet yeah i mean it is it's incredible and you write about another survival story similar to that of the the young girl in south america um, which again, yeah. you know, we'll, we'll let people read because I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible. Um, well, with, um, with the writing, so you were, you were a professional musician. I know that you wrote for Playboy and I know the, the, the joke is always that, you know, that people are buying it for the articles. But so tell me what it was like to actually write for Playboy. Like what, what were some of the, what was some of the content that was successful despite most of the magazine being filled with naked women? Well, it's interesting. If if you're on the outside, you get a different impression than if you're on the inside. I was, in fact, the articles editor of Playboy magazine, so I was the editor of those pieces that everybody claimed to want to read. <laughs> and and initially, I, I at the same time, I was I was writing pieces like that as well. And some of those pieces are in this new book of mine, uh, House of Pain. Um, but in fact, if you go back and look at the magazine, the magazine wasn't really filled with pictures of naked women. The naked women seemed to fill more space because they were naked. Um, and if you go back and look at it, it was a very tame sort of burlesque kind of nudity that you know was more innocent than anything, especially given the time at that time when Penthouse was coming out and Hustler was coming out and some really, really raunchy stuff was going on. Playboy looked like, you know, a, a Girl Scout jamboree. Um, and most of the magazine was not filled with pictures of naked women. It was filled with other stuff. Some of it good journalism, some of it good fiction, and some of it just silly, you know, like Cosmo for men kind of stuff. Um, a lot of hairspray ads at that time in the 70s. Uh, but, you know, it was a good job. They paid well. They were very um, generous in every possible way. But I did not want a job. I wanted to be a writer. 
and I wanted to be on the other side of the desk doing the assignments. And so I was only there for six years. I quit when I was 30. And um, because I looked at myself in the mirror and said, well, you've got they're, – they're giving you all this money, and it's a very cushy job. But if you're not going to quit when you're 30, when are you going to quit? When you're 50? I mean, <laughs> so so I got out of there. I haven't had a job since 1978. Beautiful. Well, I'm, I'm recently self-employed as of a couple of years ago, and it feels amazing. So I can relate. Um, just before we move on, not, not trying to kind of flog the playboy element with a dead horse, but I mean, the man behind it was a very interesting individual who also kind of wrote his own rules. So did you have any interaction with Hugh Hefner? And, and if so, what was he like as a human being? Yeah. I, I did work with Hefner um, directly, not a whole lot, but, but at times, depending on what was going on. And I also went, he gave parties and I went to parties at his house and Whenever, um, well, when he lived in Chicago, that was one thing. But then he moved to Los Angeles and had the Beverly Hills mansion out there. And whenever I went to Los Angeles on business, he opened the mansion to me so that I could just drive up and come in and go sit by the pool. And the servants would bring me, you know, my bacon and eggs in the morning if I wanted. Um, so, yeah, like I say, it was a very cushy job. But Hefner himself had a brilliant idea. In fact, he had only one brilliant idea. And the brilliant idea was that uh, what teenage boys want, and therefore probably men want all their life, is to see the girl next door without her clothes on. And there's like a universal thing that probably goes back to caveman. Um, and that they also are terrified, especially teenage boys, are terrified of not being sophisticated and making fools of themselves. And so what if you put those two things together into a magazine to where you could tell a guy how to be cool, like here's what to wear, here's the booze to buy, here's the hi-fi stereo system to, to buy, here's what records are cool, here's how to read stuff to make you seem smart, and here are some naked girls to look at. This was a formula that was irresistible at the time. This was the 1950s. And that was Hefner's great idea, and he was right, and it made him a millionaire many times over. He made the mistake that many people in business make, which is that success in one area means you can be successful in any area, which is not true, usually never true. Um, Xerox made that mistake. Xerox invented the copier, and it was the most popular product ever built in history. And they thought because of that, that they could do anything they wanted. And it nearly destroyed the company because they couldn't. They really couldn't do anything they wanted. Uh, so Hefner was a kind of classic uh, story of success and then failure because he started all kinds of other businesses that he didn't know anything about and lost a lot of money. Yeah, this is interesting to, to look as well because I always think of Playboy as – like you said, the kind of pinnacle, no matter who it is, if, if there's, let's say, a woman in this example wants to, you know, do some sort of nude photo shoot, then that's kind of like you said, the classy, respectable place to do it. Um, the, the interesting thing, as you said, is that it really does you know, show what men want. And we have a very kind of, in one way, Victorian 
look towards the human body towards sex so i think that that was really why he was so successful was because it's what we all want you know and you know we i think a lot of us would be proud to be in a magazine like that if we thought that you know other people thought we were attractive because that's one of the the things you know that humans want is acceptance but it was done in a very classy way like you said it was it was held more towards the art side than anything else well, and because there was this great emphasis on sophistication, um, and they, because of the amount of money we had, I could buy anything I wanted. So if I wanted to have a famous author in the magazine, I could afford to just call up his agent in New York and say, how much do you want? And we'd pay it. And so we could get the best fiction, the best nonfiction that, uh, existed at that time and and that that was delivering a, a worthwhile product the other thing that you notice if you were to go back and look at the magazine in the 70s when i was there these magazines were like 450 pages long they were printed on the finest paper you can buy with the most expensive printing processes rotogravure and things like that and so you'd get this magazine, and it really would last you a month. I mean, it was a huge magazine. You can't find that anymore. It doesn't exist. No, well, that's the problem. I have a lot of magazines these days, and I understand it's because they're trying to make money. But you buy, let's say, you know, Men's Health, for example, is one of the ones I used to read. And I think if you actually pulled out the content, it would probably be about third a quarter of the magazine. Everything else is, is adverse. So it becomes yeah. a very unpleasant reading experience. Yeah. Right. Well, then moving forward from magazines. Um, so you decided to walk away from that. So tell me, when did you really start getting deep into, you know, the psychology of human behavior um, and especially in the do we survive or do we die kind of um, environment that you ended up writing about? So, as I said, I had been interested in that through writing about aviation and airline crashes and wondering what were they thinking but in the um, 80s and 90s, I began doing what we referred to as uh, adventure journalism. I worked for uh, a magazine called um, um, National Geographic Adventure. <clears throat> and, um, and I would go out to these wilderness places and have these adventures and come back and write about them. And somebody would photograph them and they'd go into the magazine looking very romantic and lush and like your reader wants to do it too. You know, they see what, what a cool time I had and what a beautiful place it is. And they want to immediately jump on an airplane and go out there and, and jump, jump in head first. Well, one time I was out in Glacier National Park and I got lost. And I wasn't lost for very long, but I was lost enough that it scared me. In fact, I, I was rescued by chance, just completely by chance. Um, and it was at the beginning of a two-day ice storm. And I recognized as I was back in my hotel and all warm and, and cuddly that if I hadn't been rescued by chance, I would have died. And I came back home and I said to my editor, you know, we make these things all romantic, but I think we owe it to our readers to say, hey, kids, you know, you can get hurt out there. 
and here's some things you ought to know. And his initial response was, well, we don't want to do that. Our advertisers would hate that. We're supposed to make this stuff look like fun. And I said, well, yeah, but, you know, you can get hurt. Anyway, we went back and forth about this for quite a while. And eventually he gave me permission to do a story um, that would be called The Rules of Adventure. And it was kind of like 12 things that you could consider when you're going on a trip like this and how to not get yourself killed. Um, and it won the National Magazine Award. And I said, see, I told you so. People like this stuff. <laughs> so near-death experiences are just as good for being exciting. Um, anyway, then the following year, I did a story about being lost, which it turns out is a very interesting story and has a scientific underpinning. And the next year, that won the National Magazine Award, too. And I thought, well, I, I'm onto something here. This is really <laughs> working out nicely. And so I decided that I was going to put it into a book, and that's the book that became Deep Survival. Yeah, well, I think the concept of lost I'd love to explore because – you write a lot about people that are lost in a wilderness, you know, and again, I urge people to, to read the stories. You wouldn't do it justice in, in this, this conversation. But, um, you talking about the definition, because there are so many people listening who, and myself included, have had that period inside a burning building where for a moment we felt lost. Well, this is a, you know, 1200 square foot footprint and we felt completely lost. I'll never forget there was a, a fire I went to it was a two-story townhome and I was with my crew so it was me and I think either two or three other people I forget the staffing on that day and the footprint of this particular building was downstairs was the full footprint well upstairs was was part of the footprint they actually had the two-story kind of vaulted ceilings so when we went upstairs it's completely pitch black with the uh, the smoke I got completely disoriented because I knew what was downstairs and my brain couldn't compute why it wasn't the same square footage upstairs. And I would say hand on heart that that moment, even though there were other human beings with me, I felt a slight panic because I felt lost. So if you wouldn't mind, kind of explain to people, you know, what the best definition of lost is, because I think it applies very well to our uh, audience. Well, so we have... Uh equipment in our brains that is there for mapping our environment. And, and the first thing I'll say about being lost is that it is a real existential emergency for an animal here in the suburbs where I live. They'll tell you if you have a problem, you know, let's say with squirrels, all you have to do is trap them and then take them to the forest preserve, the park and let them go like they're going to just take up residence, you know, 10, 10 miles away. And, and that shows a complete misunderstanding of how mammals work. Uh, mammals are very, very much attached to place, and they have to know where they are. And if they don't have an accurate concept of where they are, they cannot find food, they cannot find water, they cannot find a mate. Most importantly, they don't know where their family group is. Animals are social. And so transporting someone out of that home environment is very, very dangerous for, for a mammal. Um, sometimes it can work. 
like reestablishing wolves in the wilderness, which has worked. But in that case, they take a bunch of them at once and put them out there and they get to know each other or they fight with each other, but eventually they settle down. With an individual human in a situation like you're talking about, even a slight disorientation can trigger that emergency system. Um, and especially beginning with what you know to be a hazardous situation anyway. And so you as a firefighter go into a burning building, not because it's safe and not because it's known, but you got a job to do and you recognize that you're doing a dangerous job. You're, you're already primed for that panic just by that alone. You're already under stress and that stress is going to make it difficult for you to, um, invent new strategies. It's going to make it difficult for you to think clearly. And of course, practice makes it better, but it doesn't eliminate it entirely. And so anybody can get lost anywhere. This sounds silly, but I experienced it myself a couple of years ago. I have these routes as we most, most of us do to drive to the store, to you know, go to my parents' house, whatever I'm doing, right? I have familiar routes. And for whatever reason, I can't remember now, I was, I took a completely different route and I got to an intersection that was about four blocks from my house and I didn't know where I was. And I stopped at this stop sign and for a minute it was like, wait a minute, where am I? And I, I wouldn't say I exactly panicked, but I could feel that urge, you know, that urgency about literally not knowing where I was. And then I went through the intersection and it snapped into focus. Um, so being lost is, is, first of all, very natural to react to. Secondly, it's very dangerous for mammals. And, and third, it's something that we all experience at one time or another and have to be prepared not to panic. So the typical thing I talk about in the book is if you're hiking in the w wilderness and you're going someplace, you're not sure where you're going yet, but you think you know, and suddenly you realize that you really have no idea where you are. All of a sudden, you're really disoriented. The, the first natural thing people do is they start to run, and that makes no sense at all because you don't have a direction. But I tell a story in Deep Survival about a guy who does that, and of course, if you run, you get lost even more. And then you're really in trouble. Um, and so the thing to do in those cases, the best thing to do, which people rarely do, is to backtrack. Uh, usually you're someplace where you can get to the place you were before. And if you can get to the place you were before, you can get to the place before that. Um, but again, that takes calming yourself down. So I'm not sure what you did in that building you were in, but um, – usually you can take a step back and that's the best best thing to do yeah well for for me that particular moment and again i don't know i have no recollection of the the um events leading up to it i want to explore kind of sleep deprivation in a minute and our ability to function at a high level but i'm sure that was factoring in but in the end i realized well, wait a second i know there's a hose line by me so I'm fine because if I follow that hose line, it gets me back to the engine. So once I got to gather my thoughts, then I was good. And that's something that you highlight very well in the book. There's some illustrated stories of 
people that weren't even in that much danger. And the scuba scuba divers, perfect example that were found dead because they just pulled their regulator out. Um, and then there's some examples of people coming over overcoming incredible um, adversity. So, what kind of events lead up to um, these stressful situations where people um, are able to overcome? You know, and what I'm talking about is is trainings, training under stress. Some some of these things that you see in common denominator that are, that are allowing people when they're thrust in these very very dangerous life threatening conditions, they were the ones that were able to survive. One of the things that's most important is to learn to be calm in your everyday life. And so you have to picture yourself, you know, you've got somewhere to go and you're driving there and it's important and you want to be on time and you get stuck in traffic and you know now you're going to be late. And what do you do? How do you respond? Are any of these everyday kind of challenges that are not necessarily life-threatening, but that are frustrating, um, I think offer an opportunity for us to learn to keep calm. And so instead of letting yourself get frustrated, you find a strategy, whatever it is for you, um, to stay calm in the face of frustration. Um, And these things arise every day for us all. And it's a matter of becoming more aware of your own responses to things and learning not to let it bother you. When you get under extreme stress, you don't invent new strategies. You fall back on given strategies that you've already practiced. So I tell a story and I can't remember which book it's in. It may be in deep survival, but I can't remember right now. It's about an FBI agent who decided that it would be a good idea to train himself to snatch a gun out of a assailant's hand if he ever got in that situation. And so he trained to do that. And he actually got very good at it. And sure enough, one day he was out on the street with his partner and a bad guy popped out and put a, pointed a gun at him. And he snatched a gun out of the bad guy's hand. And then he gave it back. And you think, wow, what was he thinking? I mean, how could you possibly do that? And the answer is very simple. It's because that's what he practiced with his partner. He'd snatch the gun and he'd give it back and he'd snatch the gun and he'd give it back. Well, under stress, he didn't learn a new strategy. He did what he had practiced. And so I always say, we're always practicing something in life. Be careful what you practice because that's what you're going to get under stress. Um, And so if you, you know, you got kids and the kids spill the milk and you yell and scream, you're not practicing being calm. You know, you you can think of a million little things that go on every day in your life that you could practice being calm. And I believe that being calm is the most important thing because it lets you think through the problem and you say correctly, like, okay, I think I'm lost. I can feel myself starting to panic. However, I know I've got a hose. So if I follow the line, it will get me out of here. And, you know, uh, that's that's responding correctly. And it probably comes from practicing correctly. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's that's one thing that I think is very important. Um, in, in everyday life, we find ourselves in environmentally less and less stressful positions. And I'm going to 
pull a quote from your book I had written down here. You say, most people operate in an environment of such low risk that action, inaction, or the vicissitudes, that's a new word for me, (laughs) of brains have few consequences. So, and I agree completely. So we are, unlike the, you know, the, the prehistoric hunter, we have so few threats to our life that that, that ability to become more and more complacent just grows and grows. So when you then enter the police service, the fire service, we have to, I think, work harder to create these stressful environments in our training because we're not under stress in a lot of our life. So, you know, with, with what you see, not only with my profession, but the law enforcement and the, the, the military professions and, and, and um, aviation, how important is, is it to train regularly under stress to try and prepare these men and women as best as possible for these survival situations? I think it's important to do that. I think it's a um, it has it holds potential dangers as well, and it probably holds them not so much for the fire service as for the police, and probably not so much for the military as the police, because the military are trained to go to war, uh, whereas the police are supposedly trained to keep the peace. And firefighters are trained to fight fires or to rescue people. And so the training, I think, for the fire service and the military or any kind of first responders can become very realistic and very um, useful in, in producing stress and teaching you how to cope with stress. I think in police work, it's much more dangerous to do that. And I'll tell you why. Um a police training organization came to me a couple of years ago and said, we have read your book, Deep Survival, and we want to talk to you about how to prevent certain kind of accidents we've been having in training and uh, see if you can help us stop them. There was a new kind of accident happening. And the accident was, well, I'll back up a step and say, police training in, say, 1950 was you'd tell the, the cops, go down in the basement to the range and shoot uh, such and such a score on the target and come back when you're done and you'll be qualified. And you'd have a little paper target that would have a bullseye on it and you'd shoot, score your score, and that would be your training for the month or the year. And uh, then they figured out, well, let's make a silhouette of a human. That will make it more realistic. So they did that. And then they had a improvement, so-called, where – the targets would pop out unexpectedly and you'd have to respond to them and figure out whether they were good guys or bad guys. And that went on and on. And the development gradually got so sophisticated that they actually were using police, what they call force on force, which is live policemen, real policemen. Half of them would be the bad guys and half of them would be the good guys. And they would give them real guns and they would shoot each other. And they would do this with specially made guns. So Smith & Wesson makes them, Ruger makes them, and they are loaded not with lead bullets, but with paintball-type bullets. So that's the simunition? Yes, that's correct. Um, and, and so it got so realistic and so stressful that these guys learned that the way to respond to stress is to shoot somebody. 
Well, the accidents began happening fairly quickly and predictably is that they would go through this training. They'd be all amped up. They'd put on their real guns again and somebody would pop out from behind a doorway and they'd shoot him without even thinking about it. Just like the reflex we talked about earlier where I look up because I think there might be a ceiling fan there to bite me. These guys would shoot. Not, it was just like the FBI guy handing the gun back to the assailant. They, they don't have to think about it once you instill a reflex in them. So now all these cops are shooting all these innocent people, and it's not a mystery at all why they're doing it. They're doing it because they're trained to do it, and they're emptying their guns. Many times after these incidents, they say, well, gosh, why, do, why did he have to shoot him 16 times? Well, he had to shoot him 16 times because that's the way he trained, and there are 16 bullets in the gun. So if you train somebody to do that, they're going to do it. So – Yes, stress training is good, not in all situations and not in extremes like that. Yeah, that's a very interesting perspective. And it reminds me of another story I heard from uh, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman where um, they found a couple of times a law enforcement officer dead with the casings um, from his revolver in his hand. And what he'd done is he'd, he'd shot it and in that particular range they didn't want casings on the floor so they made him pick them up. So as instead of reloading, he yeah. picked up his casings and was found there with them in his hands. So, yeah, I mean, I think the, the stress training is important, but absolutely, if we got to think about what scenarios are we building under stress? Because I just had a Green Beret who's the founder of GORUCK on Jason McCarthy. And one of the things he's talking about was when you train to a high level, you have the ability to not pull the trigger. And I think that's, that's where we need to be heading towards in, in law enforcement. Yeah. I agree. Right. Well, then, um, total tangent, but I want to make sure that we get to this. It is highly accepted that our associate professions have dark humor. Um, and we, you know, we just kind of say, well, it's, it's how we deal with it. Well, you, you have a little bit more of a deeper dive into that. So explain to me the psychology of why police and fire, you know, have that kind of, uh, um, you know, morbid comedic element to them. There's a, there's a fairly simple answer to it. Um, and I can give you more detail if you like, but the, the fear response center in the brain is called the amygdala. And it's a very fast acting, um, receptor, especially for visual information, when you see something before you're conscious of seeing it, your amygdala has already perceived it and created a response to it. And laughter dampens the effect of the amygdala. So laughter is a um, an almost automatic response to calm you down in situations of stress. We can all relate to this because, and my wife and I joke about this because we live alone in a fairly big house, and every once in a while, coming around a corner, a blind corner, um, she'll call out "bear," and I'll know that she's there. <laughs> because uh, w- one of the things that I talk about is like, if you see a bear, it, you know, you're out hiking in the woods, you see a bear, your heart's going to go flutter, 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 and you're going to have a response to it when. When we run into each other in the house, unexpectedly, like around a corner, we have that, oh, my gosh, I didn't know you were there. 
Um, and it's a joke between us uh, because it's like, well, the, the, the intellect has nothing to do with it. I mean, I know my wife's in the house. I know there's nobody else in the house. And most importantly, I know there's no bears in the house. And so why am I reacting that way? Well, it's automatic. It's a reflex. You don't have control over it. And so laughter um, dampens that response. And if you recognize this in yourself, you'll remember that usually if you run into somebody like that and startle each other, you'll laugh afterwards. Even after you laugh, it takes a little bit to calm down completely to, you know, stop your heart from beating. But that's what the laughter does. And so you create scenarios and jokes and stuff that interrupt this panic response and calm you down. Yeah, see, it's good to hear because I've never heard it explained before. So we're not callous bastards. We're, there's a reason <laughs> for that. No, it serves a real function. It serves a real function. And you may be callous bastards too. Well, probably. <laughs> <laughs> so with with the resilience overall um you know again you you've written about these some of these incredible um survival stories whether it's someone you know surviving a shark attack whether it's someone surviving a plane crash um again what are what are some some of the common denominators that people either had prior to that and or people can develop to make us more likely to survive you mentioned about obviously just not overreacting to everyday things so there's there some other common denominators that, that maybe whether it's someone hiring first responders or maybe it's someone trying to become a first responder could kind of look at their own life path and learn from yes i mean one of the most important is not to give up um to be persistent uh and so you know, it's easy to get discouraged in life doing lots of ordinary things. Um, and I think the people who whose stories turn out the best are the ones who aren't easily put off the task that they set themselves. This has is, is kind of a double-sided coin because in a survival situation, you have to keep going. You have to keep working on extracting yourself from whatever the trouble is but at the same time if you're too stubborn and i tell a story about this in the book about um a hiker in the rocky mountain national forest national park um you keep going when you know you're wrong that's not the kind of persistence we want to see <laughs> so it's a fine line and it's a fine line that requires judgment and so having the judgment to know what to persist with is as important as having the will to persist. Beautiful. Well, you also touch on the importance of the why, whether it's self-extrication from a life-threatening situation or, and I see it a lot with a lot of these, especially the special operations community, why didn't you ring the bell when everyone else did? So again, tell me about that that as a common denominator of being how some people found their way out of that situation when maybe the rest of their party they were with all perished and gave up. So the more connected you are to your life, the more motivated you are to get back to your life. The more important uh, personal relationships you have, the better you will be as a survivor. 
and I tell a story about a hiker or skier, I should say. Um, his name is Vitos Escunas. And some years ago, he was taking a solo cross-country ski in um, Grand Teton National Park. And it was just, you know, it was a normal day-long thing he was going to do, and he'd done it before. And he parked in the lot, and he put on his skis, and he cross-country skied out five miles. He took a misstep and sustained a really bad spiral fracture in his leg, in his ankle. And, you know, he could hear it crack, and he went down with his full weight on it. And he knew that he was in big trouble and most likely wouldn't get out. Nobody's going to come down this trail this time of year. Very unlikely. He's five miles in. He can't use anything that he has as a crutch. Can't put weight on it anyway. But he's a good he's a good survivor. He's got a pack full of stuff that he prepared for. Um, so he sits down or he's already down. He opens his pack. He takes everything out. He puts up his tent. He lights his stove. He makes himself a hot drink and something to eat. This is a very important step because he is doing something that has a stepwise logic to it. It is orderly. So instead of the panic that one of us might feel in this situation, like, oh, my God, I'm going to die. He's doing something really logical that's going to activate that part of his brain that does logical things and allow him to think again. In addition, he's giving himself some nutrition, some sugar to power his body, uh, which is going to help him think, giving himself a hot drink, which is going to warm him up. Um, and he's going to look at all his stuff now and say, what do I need to take and how am I going to do this? And he decides to get back to your initial point, that he is going to scoot on his butt, which is the only way he can move, and he's going to dedicate every hundred moves to something in his life that he loves. So this is going to force him to review his whole life and everything in it that he wants to get back to. And to make a long story short, that's what he does. He scoots a hundred times for his wife, a hundred times for his guitar, a hundred times for his best friend, and so forth and so on. And he keeps doing it. And he gets himself out by doing that. And this is a perfect example, first of all, of how a good survivor behaves, but also of how that connection to your life can save your life. Yeah. Well, hearing that story before, I think another thing um, you talk about, I forget exactly now, I think it was some sailors on a, on a life raft and their officer gave them the command to strip their weapon and basically took them out of that terror and gave them a task and reeled them back in. And again, I, I remember a very specific call in my career. It was one of those ones where the mother comes out with the dead baby in her hands. Sadly, that ended up being abuse. So there was an even sadder end to that story. But we hadn't even got off the rig. We literally opened the door and baby's given to you. And, and again, it, it caught me on my back foot. And credit to whoever was behind the acronym at the time, ABC, Airway Breathing Circulation, that gave me that chance to just go to a, a simple acronym and then put me into action. So uh, talk about the the importance of being given a task, especially when you're kind of in that freeze state that we find ourselves in sometimes. Yeah. The um, So what we think of as thinking, the logical stepwise thinking, 
um, is in the frontal cortex of the brain, which I call the IKEA brain. Because if you go to IKEA and buy a nightstand, it comes in pieces. And you, if you can follow the instructions one by one, you'll get it put together and you'll have a nightstand. There's no other animal that can do that other than a human. Um, and you can't do that when you're in a panic either. <laughs> so emotion and reason work like a seesaw. If the emotion, by which I mean the stress, is very high, you can't think straight. And if you can do something to force your brain to think straight – in that stepwise frontal cortex fashion, it will dampen down emotion. So by giving the, the sailors the order to clean their pistols, um, he was forcing them to take step-by-step actions that they couldn't do in a panic. They had to force themselves to do these actions. So this is, this is what that's all about. And if you can find things, and ABC is a very good idea and we have acronyms we pilots have all kinds of acronyms too to remind us what to do in emergencies we have checklists as well but you can't always use one um and it's because of the recognition that when there's an emergency you may not be able to think clearly so if you can just have that little acronym to motivate you into that stepwise thinking frame of mind you can take the next steps yeah, it was very powerful, and I saw how much it pertained to many of the areas that, that we operate in, especially in the leadership role. Now, I was never an officer in a fire service. I stayed as a firefighter, but as a paramedic, that often is a leadership role on that kind of call. And I remember some some crews showing up, and again, for whatever reason, whatever the circumstances were prior to that, they were on the back foot. And I remember allocating tasks, however benign, to some of them, and it just calmed everything down, and then they started working as a cohesive unit. So, I and the same on a fire ground. I remember one particular one literally running around like his head was cut off. And so, just some simple things. All right, you're going to back me up on this hose line, and we're going to knock this fire down, we're going to go through this door. It calmed him down. So, I thought that was a very powerful element of the book well another another area and there's so many when we could talk for a hundred hours on on all the lessons learned from the books but i think was very important and it's more pertinent at the moment there's there's a push against what they call clean cab concept so we're realizing that we're exposed to a lot of carcinogens there's a great um group out of sweden that have realized that you know if we don't take everything back into the vehicle cab that we're not breathing it the rest of the time we're not on the fire um the pushback has been well we just want to leap off the fire engine run in the building go save the day and i disagree with that completely i think you need to get off the building look at the building weigh your options kind of make make the proverbial cup of tea in the italian skiers uh analogy and then affect your plan um you illustrate numerous stories of to to put it very in a layman's terms just because you can climb x mountain x doesn't mean you can automatically climb mountain y and so to me in the firefighter terms just because i've been in this house and was successful and no one got hurt and i found the the person doesn't mean i can run into the next one and have the same outcome so if you wouldn't mind i know it's kind of a broad kind of area that i've just opened but to explain that concept to people and and how us not getting her in one environment creates a sense of complacency for future calls that we'll run on. Yes, and this is related to the um, discussion we had earlier about Hugh Hefner. 
because Hefner was so successful at um, creating Playboy magazine, he thought he could do anything in business. There's an even better analogy, which was that a NAS- that NASA spent a very long time um, working to put men on the moon. And it did do that. It succeeded. <coughs> Excuse me. NASA su- succeeded in putting men on the moon, one of the great engineering feats of human history. And it gave them the idea that they could do anything. And there were some bad accidents as a result of this. Um, I think they became overconfident. They they came to believe that they could do anything and not have to pay for it. And so with the space shuttle, things were happening that were not in the spec. In other words, for example, when um, the rubber O-rings on the solid rocket boosters were burning through, this was not something the engineers had designed into the into the vehicle it was an anomaly and instead of stopping everything and saying why is this anomaly happen happening they said well the last time it went up this burned through and nothing bad happened so it must be okay and they had what the investigators later called an expanding waistband for tolerance of experiences that shouldn't have been tolerated so you can create that kind of sense in yourself by getting away with something. So I say in the book that lots of times, you know, mountaineer dies on a mountain and they report it in the newspaper and it says it's it's really hard to understand because he was a really experienced mountaineer. And I say maybe the word experience sometimes means that you've done the wrong thing more times than I have. And it's just a matter of time before it gets you. Um, so to address your uh, your description of getting to a fire and making the decision to go in or not. For a while, I was flying a lot with the Air Force and Air National Guard flying fighter planes uh, for some stuff that I was writing. And I used to be, I would get to the ready room where we do the briefing before flight. And um, and I was like, raring to go. I want, let's go. Let's go fly. Let's get in that plane. Come on, gang. Let's go. And, and they'd do the briefing, and they'd have a cup of coffee, and they'd sit around. They'd check the weather again. They'd talk amongst themselves. And I'd be like, what? You know, what's going on? Why aren't we leaving? I didn't say this. I was just thinking it. And I realized after a time that what they were doing was they were letting themselves, first of all, be calm. Secondly, think through all the possible things that could go wrong. And in a fighter plane, there's a thousand of them a thousand things that can go wrong. And if you can think of a hundred of them, you're a genius. And we all knew we weren't geniuses. And so this, this slowing down of the pace of everything was part of their process. Because once you get in there and light those engines up, you know, it's too late to start changing your plan. Um, so I think it's very important, you know, in the, in the fire service, for you to do what you were saying, like, let's let's take a look at this building and see. It's not the same as the last building. Um, I think that's a very good idea. Yeah. And just to be clear, I mean, I'm not talking about hanging out all day, <laughs> just taking a moment to assess. But yeah, the, if, if you're if you're leaping off a fire engine um, 
and running into a burning building, which is what is being suggested by us not having you know, the, the packs outside and making it safer from a carcinogen exposure point of view, um, then, yeah, I think that we are setting ourselves up for failure. And, and to me, some of the greatest fire service leaders that I've worked under have always had that old bull mentality. If people are familiar with that joke, you know, we're, uh, we're going to take our time. I mean, slow is smooth, smooth is fast. I mean, that's, that's what I've seen. So yeah, not having that kind of headless chicken mentality, taking a breath, getting that, that emotion in check first, making a good assessment of what you're about to do and then executing the task. Yeah, that's what I experienced when I worked with the Chicago Fire Department, that they, um, you know, I, we had some old guys um, working with us that had been there a long time and some younger guys, too. Uh, but they they would just go, well, let's, let's just take a look at this first and make sure, you know, that we don't have something that's going to blow up on us. So, yeah. Absolutely. Well, another area that I found fascinating was you talk about sometimes where, um, you know, a group has tried to invent something to make an environment safer, actually that ends up making it less safe. So I'd love to kind of explore that topic. Well, the classic example of that is uh, the one that's told about taxi drivers in Germany. They were the first place where anti-lock brakes were tested out. They gave anti-lock brakes to the taxi drivers in Germany, thinking, well, you know, now they can stop more quickly, the accident rate will go down. Well, the accident rate went up. And the reason is because the taxi drivers said, wow, we can stop more quickly. That means we can drive more aggressively and get more fares and make more money. So they started running into each other at a higher rate. Um, and the same thing has happened over and over again. It happened in commercial shipping when they introduced radar the captain said, oh, boy, now we can see each other. We can go faster. Um, the accident rate went up. In both cases, the accident rate came down again to its previous level, but it didn't make it safer. Um, and, and so this is a typical uh, turn of events that is usually referred to as risk homeostasis, which means everybody has a preferred level of risk that they'll take. And it may be very a very low level of risk, like my mother, who's going to be a hundred next week. Um, she she accepts a very very little risk. Or it may be like me when I was in my twenties flying aerobatics, you know, where I was accepting a very high level of risk. Whatever it is, we'll try to seek that level. And if we perceive the environment to be more risky, we'll take less risk. If we perceive it to be more safe, we'll take more risk. And so it's perception that's important. It's not the absolute risk, which is difficult to measure, but most people are wrong about it. So, um, you know, lots of people are afraid of flying in commercial airliners, even though commercial airliners are, you know, more people die in the bathtub than die in commercial airliners. So um, our perception of risk is is different from what real risk is. And efforts to make things safer often just complicate them. And there's a, there's a nice book by a man named Charles Perrault called Normal Accidents. And he talks about things like the pipeline industry, nuclear power plants, mining, um, where efforts to make it safer have often made it more dangerous. 
Yes, it's fascinating. And I think about, you know, a few things. Firstly, the invention of bunker gear, which I think was absolutely a positive, but there's definitely an element where our men and women go a lot deeper into fires than they ever could. They just physically couldn't prior to that. So that's a, that's a good example. Um, another area though, which is, is a hard sell, sadly, because of the devolution of the firefighters work week. And I use that word deliberately. Um, is sleep deprivation. And I've had some incredible people from the sleep medicine world. I've had naval captains. I've had pilots. Talk to me through your experience on the um, the contributing factor of sleep deprivation to some of these disasters that you've studied. Well, sleep deprivation is a form of stress, and it's a special form of stress that's been widely studied. Um, but it's just another parameter along which you can be degraded you know being hungry is another if you if you're not if your nutrition is suffering that will also degrade your ability to function and when i say your ability to function i mean your ability to physically function your coordination but also your thinking your judgment your emotional level all of those things are going to be hurt by sleep deprivation and sleep deprivation plays a big role in aviation accidents. We often see that because flight crews um, are by definition sleep deprived because they cross so many time zones. And so a lot of times you get pilots who aren't functioning up to par and, and, and there's almost no way to fix that because, you know, if you fly from Chicago to London and then you have to turn around and fly from London to Africa, you know, you're going to be messed up. Um, and so it's a big problem. Um, and I think, yes, in the case of firefighters, this can be life threatening. Yeah. Cause you do talk about the safety measures. So let's say, for example, we have firefighters falling from a ladder. So now we're strapping, you know, belts around us or, you know, we're belaying not with one rope with two. Like there's, there's a certain point where I understand there's, there's, you know, um, redundancy and safety depending on the, the speed that a rescue needs to be put in place. But now, having been exposed to sleep medicine the last few years, I go back and look at those wrecks that happened at the intersection where the responding vehicle blew through a red light and killed a minivan full of people, or the firefighter that got lost, or the police officer that shot the teenager reaching for their driving license. An area that's completely in our control if we stand up as a profession and demand you know, more rest between these overnight shifts is sleep deprivation. And so rather than keeping creating ga gadgets and gizmos, maybe we should start looking holistically at the human being in the uniform and getting them in an optimal state to perform the profession they're being asked to do. Yeah, and that's uh, what you say is true. In, in uh, If you look at a modern policeman in a modern city, you see a guy with so much gear on that you can barely see the guy, you know. And, and I look at these guys and I think, seriously, can you function with all that stuff on? I mean, to me, it, it's kind of um, – it's, it's a combination of oversell. You know, there are too many gadgets to sell and overfixing problems that should have other solutions. But I, there's only one solution to the sleep deprivation problem, and that's sleep. So when I was with uh, the Chicago, working with the Chicago Fire Department, they were doing 40, 24 hours on, 48 hours off. Are they still doing that? 
Yes, they are. And, and that's, um, that's kind of the standard. I think that the rest of the Northeast, the New York area is actually, um, 42 hour work week. So, um, um, 2472 or a version of, but most of the US is 2448. The federal is actually 2424, which is even more terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but definitely, definitely a factor. Yeah, well, thank you for your perspective. Because again, you know, it's just another another voice in this whole area. I understand completely. It came from when we were sitting around just waiting for a fire. That's not the environment now. Our men and women are working twenty four hours straight. Um, so what are they doing? What are they doing? Yeah. Um, I mean, literally running. Because I think the big the big thing that really elevated the call load was when we started doing EMS. And all of us, you know, well, most of us love the EMS component because there's no point pulling someone out of a burning building if you don't know how to treat them once you get out there. So it's an important part. But with with you know the fail, you know the the increasing ill health of the average American, average Brit, average you know Australian, the the nine one one nine 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 abuse. 211, I think it is in Australia. Um, you know, that, that happening as well. We're just creating this environment where we're overworking our men and women, but we're not changing the work week to match the demands of what they're being asked to do. Yeah. 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 When I, when I was with the Chicago Fire Department, they, they had a separate team that was EMS. It was, it was, you know, there were the guys who ran on the ambulance and I ran with them too. But then there were the other guys who were strictly firefighting. I mean, they knew they, I think, were qualified to do um, to treat people. But that's not their that wasn't their primary job. They did sit around waiting for fires. And that was that was when. I would say um, early nineties, late eighties, early. 90s. Somewhere around in there, early 90s. Yeah, and I'm sure, I mean, don't get me wrong, there are fire stations in the U.S. where they're not very busy, you know, in in rural areas that, that don't have a huge population. Maybe the population has more environmental knowledge and understanding and resilience, but, um, you know, a lot of the agencies, especially the ones that are cross-trained, um, they're running a huge amount now. Well, one more area I want to touch on before we go to some closing questions Um is driving. So in the book I, I showed you at the beginning, one chapter I did was on death on the roads because a lot of, aside from, you know, the ill health, the, we don't lose a lot of people in fires. Everyone that we do is, is absolutely tragic, but we lose 40,000 Americans every year on the roads. Yeah. And an observation I made coming from the UK that has a very, very hard driving test to pass. And I've talked about this numerous times on here, but it's average passing rate is like third or fourth attempt. Um, to what we have here, that seems again like an easy area to just raise the bar that I think would have a good effect on, you know, on the roads themselves. So what has been your observation just through your studies, through your career, um, with how we do driving tests and how we could maybe positively affect some of those figures? Well, let me say to begin with <clears throat> that if I invented the automobile today, and it didn't exist yet. And I said, there's this really cool invention I've got. I want to get it approved by the government. It'll take you anywhere you want to go. It just requires that you have a industrial strength engine dragging around 4,000 pounds of steel. Um, and it'll only kill 40,000 people a year. What do you think? It would be like, are you crazy? <laughs> <laughs> it's true, I'm though. Sorry, this is not this is not happening. This is not happening. And it'll also destroy the uh, 
atmosphere. Um, I think that we are living in a very unusual time, in a time when you can jump in that 4,000-pound hunk of steel and drive from coast to coast, not talk to anybody, just just do it because you want to do it. Um, I don't think that's going to last. I think certainly testing better for drivers is an excellent idea. I mean, think about airplanes. You know, you have to get a pilot's license. They don't they don't let you solo in an airplane just like here. Here's the key. Good luck. Um, but in in where I live anyway, in Chicago area, you go in to take a driving test. There's nothing to it. I mean, a monkey could pass it. Well, I did um, in Florida, so there we go. <laughs> <laughs> well, in Florida, special they you can drive in in Miami with the uh, rules according to whatever country you come from. Um, but but yes, I think it should be much more difficult to drive a car than it is in many ways and for many reasons. Uh, safety being certainly a big one. Um, but I also think, I mean, there's a whole cultural element to automobiles in the United States that may or may not exist elsewhere. Just watch a car commercial on TV and ask yourself, what's the message here? The message is drive as fast as you can, drive right off the road into the dirt, make as much mess as possible, and at the end of the drive, do a 360. You know, and um, what what are they telling us? What are they selling? Um, and then expect somebody who's seen this commercial and fallen for it and bought the car to go out and drive in a in a sane fashion. So the whole culture of automobiles, at least in this country, is nuts, in my opinion. Certainly, better training would help. But this is the United States of America, and if you look at things like the laws about guns. Um, you know, people are not very rational in this country and they certainly don't want to be told what to do. And it's very, very unlikely where something like driving is controlled by the state, not the federal government. Uh, it's just not going to happen. You have to be defensive. You have to assume that the guy in the other car nearest you is insane. Well, that's exactly how I drive. I'm an absolute shit magnet anyway. I don't know why. I've had three cars, three different colors. It's not that. Um, I am a defensive driver, and uh, yeah, everyone laughs at me. They're like, "Ah, you're 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 full of it." And then they come driving me. Like, my God, <laughs> you really are. But that's how I tell my my sons. Like, one of my stepson, and he's driving now, and I catch him occasionally. He doesn't know I'm watching, and he is still driving. You know, very sensibly. But um, yeah, I mean, you have to assume, and you just you look now. You look at the cars. One hand on the steering wheel, the other hand on the cell phone, staring at it. I'm sure you yeah. know, DUI when I was early in my career used to be you know, a big cause of the deaths. And I guarantee you that cell phone use has probably overtaken that now. So, you know, you talk about that environment and, and, and complacency. Well, we've taken an already dangerous vehicle with a very low entry rate bar. And now you've added a, you know, a cell phone into it. And, and, you know, we're creating this recipe for disaster. Well, just so your people know, um, they make these cars so you can use hands-free cell phone now. And you do not need the hands. You need the brain. And so talking on the phone with any device, whether it's hands-free or not, is what distracts you. It's not the hands. Um, and so our whole understanding of automobiles is kind of upside down in my view. 
Absolutely. Well, one more area I just meant to touch on before we, we transition is COVID. So we've been talking about resilience. We've been talking about survival. We've been talking about fear. It's been very interesting for me watching this last year. Um, firstly, the, the fact that only the polarizing extremists got to have any, any voice on this whole thing. Either it's, you know, it's a, it's a Russian conspiracy or if you don't wrap yourself in cellophane, you're going to murder everyone. Whereas in the middle, to me, the conversation needs to be, yes, this is a very real virus like many others, but let's talk about your health, your resilience, your, your mental health and get you as, as strong as possible when you get this virus, unless of course a vaccine comes. So what has been your observation of the last 12 months through the lens of all the studies that you've done? Well, it hasn't been encouraging. Uh, it's been uh, a combination of seeing people uh, just being stupid and and feeling bad for them because I believe they're not really stupid. They just don't know the facts, um, don't appreciate any of the mechanisms involved in this disease, um, just don't have a basic understanding of their environment and the world around them. Um, and it makes me want to take them and shake them and say, look, you know, you're, you're doing something that's really simple to prevent. And you're going to get sick if you keep doing it. But, of course, I'm not taking anybody and shaking anybody these days. Um, so something as simple as the mask. The mask in its normal form, which is called a stage one mask, is what they use in an operating room. It's what the doctor puts on his face. It's meant to protect the patient from him. It's not meant to protect him from the patient. So if there's some consideration that the patient might be contagious with something, the doctor puts on an N95 mask with the stage one over it. And that gives him a pretty good, not quite 100% chance of not getting whatever the patient has. Um, and so I see people out on the street with all kinds of makeshift masks, not understanding what they do, everything from a you know, a bandana wrapped around their face to a regular stage one mask on their chin or a mask they've got over their mouth, but their nose is poking out and they're not getting the message of how this thing works. Um, so the, the, the initial instructions we all got were stay six feet apart. Right when this first began, my wife and I were walking on the street and I was pontificating like, Six feet apart does not cut it. That's not how this thing works. I don't know where this came from, but six feet apart is maybe for the largest droplets that come out of your mouth, but six feet apart is not good enough. And as we were walking, we saw this car stop a half a block away, and some women got out, and we immediately smelled their perfume. And I said, there. That's the distance at which the microscopic drops that are electrostatically active can get to you because they won't drop to the ground, they'll float. And those ladies, their air is moving toward us and it just went up my nose because I can smell it. And that's a half a block away. So most people, you know, I'll see on the street and if they're smart enough to have a mask, they've got their heads together and they're shouting at each other. This is not good behavior. So what, what have I seen? It's been pretty depressing for me to watch all this. Um, and I think a program of education because I guarantee you this is not our last pandemic. 
a program of education is what's needed to tell people how to how to do this. You know, if you can teach people to scuba dive, you can teach people to wear a mask correctly. Um, and that, you know, either they either they do it well. And of course, the politicization of this whole thing it makes it even worse. Because wearing a mask is not a sign of your political party. It's a sign that you don't want to get sick or don't want to make other people sick. So as as I would say to my wife, don't get me started. <laughs> <laughs> well, the other side, because I, I agree completely, especially with the the reach. You know, I, I remember I was wearing a mask. I, I do a stunt show um, on the side and was walking back through one of the theme parks that are open now. Everyone's required to wear a mask. I had this, you know, pretty thick mask that I wear even during the show when I'm running around fighting people on a stage and I remember smelling um, smoke and the smoking area was kind of like you were saying like probably you know at least half a block if not further away um, and that was through the mask that I could smell it The so my thing is I think that side is wrong obviously coming from EMS I understand the kind of masks we should be wearing because we wear them um, however, the other side that I think has broken my heart is the resilience factor. We could have spent a year making Americans healthier, physically, mentally, changing policies and what we feed our children, putting PE back in the schools, you know, bolstering, finding gyms, you know, finding ways to keep the gyms open, supporting the local healthy food restaurants. But again, like you said, the politicized um, war that was going on on our screens negated all of those common sense things in the middle and as you said this is just this pandemic there's also a pandemic of heart disease and strokes and cancer we need to be addressing all those whilst we're also observing the isolation practices yeah the other thing i like to talk about concerning the pandemic is this pandemic will be over at some point and i i know my wife and i just got vaccinated so we're a little, you know, we're taking a little more uh, outward look now, seeing the grandkids, but eventually it'll be over. And everybody wants to go back to their normal life. The trouble with this, and this feeds into the business about trauma that we talked about earlier, is once you go through something like this, there is no normal life. Life changes. And everything you thought was your normal life is not going to be in the same place where you were used to it being. Um, many things have changed permanently about work, for example. There are places that realized how good it is to uh, work remotely that are going to continue doing that. So you, many people won't go back to the office. They won't need to. Um, and there are all kinds of other things that have changed too. I mean, just being cautious about other people changes you because of the social nature of human societies. Um, and, and so I think we have to have our minds open to how am I going to recreate my life in a new image when this thing is over? And I think it'll be a gradual process, but I think we need to be thinking about it now um, as we start to make this transition into a more open society. Well, that, that segues into one question I forgot to ask you before. So I asked about the takeaways as far as, you know, fostering resilience and the highest ability to, to self-rescue. What are some of the takeaways more on the post-traumatic side? Uh, I've, one that seems to really resonate with me when people are, are starting to, to heal 
is the altruistic element. When they're able to start helping others, it seems to be incredibly healing. So with, I mean, there's no better time to talk about this than coming out of a year-long pandemic that definitely hit some people very, very hard. So what are some of the takeaways for people from, from that topic? Well, we talked about work being an antidote uh, or whatever your pursuit is being an antidote to PTSD kind of conditions. Um, one of the most effective methods of work or one of the most effective pursuits is to find somebody who's worse off than you are and help that person. And so you often find people who are traumatized in childhood go into therapy. I mean, they become therapists to help others. Um, and the same is true after the pandemic. If you can be in a position where you're the rescuer instead of the victim, you'll do much better. It's it's always been true. It's been documented that in, you know, in, in natural disasters, for example, there's an earthquake. Uh, the guy who's the doctor and is helping people does much better than the person who just sort of sits there idly and waits for somebody to, to rescue them. Uh, so this is a this is a real recipe for success post pandemic. Beautiful. All right. Well, I want to transition some closing questions. So be mindful of your time. Um, before I do, just a quick question. I went to visit the Half King a couple of years ago with my wife. Sebastian has been on the show. Um, is it twice now? And he's coming back on again very soon with his new book. Did I read correctly that that's closed down now? Yes. That's so Did sad you, to hear. Um, what's his new book? Um, it's going to be called Freedom. It's the basically the one he wrote after Tribe. So I can't wait to read it. Yeah, great. <clears throat> yes, um, I Sebastian's been very kind to me, although I've never met him. <clears throat> um, so whenever I'd have a book come out, I would go do a reading at the Half King. And uh, as you know from Deep Survival, he gave me a nice blurb for the cover. Um, so I'm a, I'm a fan. But yeah, the Half King, that was, sh that was a shame. It, it did close down. I'm sorry to hear it. Well, at least I got to, to see it. But yeah, that was very sad. All right. Well, yeah. then, so yeah, you have an, an, um, a laundry list of books. Um, you, the two I've read so far are Deep Survival and Surviving Survival. And you have a brand new one, The Chemistry of Fire. So tell me about that. The Chemistry of Fire is a collection of essays. Uh, I have two collections of essays. Um, the first one was called House of Pain, and this one is called The Chemistry of Fire. And it, these essays are not a particular subject. They're about different subjects, but they all somehow have fed into the development of, of deep survival and surviving survival in that I, I go out, I experience something, in many cases, something risky uh, or something challenging that allows me to do analysis of behavior and decision making and things like that. And then I come back with some, you know, lesson learned. Um, and so these are the precursors that went into creating, um, for the most part, deep survival and surviving survival. And then my other big area of interest, as I mentioned, is aviation. And my big book on aviation is called Flight 232. And it's a reconstruction of the crash of a DC-10, a fully loaded DC-10 that happened in 1989 at Sioux City, Iowa. And if you go to my webpage, deepsurvival.com, 
and you look at flight 232 on there, it'll say more about flight 232. And you can click on that and see a video of the crash because the crash was caught on video, which is extremely unusual. And if you see that video, you will see it looks like no one could possibly have survived that crash. There's a huge fireball and the plane breaks up and tumbles down the runway. And yet two thirds of the people survived. And so as a result, I was able to document from the inside out what essentially should have been a fatal crash, only there were a lot of people from inside who were still alive to talk about it. So it's a unique document in aviation history, and it was a a sort of lifetime goal of mine to write that book. Well, DC-10 factors into your own survival as well. So if if you have got time, the story of, of the plane that you didn't get on. Sure. Um, So as I said, I've studied aviation most of my professional career. Early on in my career, around 1972, I began looking at the DC-10 because it had a lot of crashes. Um, And through the early 70s, it was crashing in a way that was very unusual. It would just crash like for no particular reason on its own. And I thought, what's going on with this airplane? And so I researched it and began finding what the flaws were with this airplane. It had design flaws built into it that ensured that it would crash. I I started writing about um, the DC-10 probably in 73 or 4, maybe 74. Um, And I didn't like the DC-10 and I didn't like flying on it and – I I was scared of it. In 1979, I had um, my first novel came out, and there's a big um, book fair in Los Angeles um, that I believe was called the National Booksellers Convention, um, National Booksellers Association Convention. Well, anyway, it was a big book convention in L.A. And the staff at Playboy was going to go, a number of people from the staff, was going to go there to go to the convention. My boss, the managing editor of Playboy, a guy named Shell Wax, his wife had just come out with her first book, too. So they were going to go there. I was going to go there to promote my book. Our foreign rights editor was going to go there to do some foreign rights business. And our fiction editor was going to go there to do some fiction business. So they were all going together. And I was going to go with them. But then I discovered that they were going on a DC-10. This is one of the daily flights they had to L.A. from Chicago. uh, American had a flight midday, um, every day. And I said, Shell, it's a DC-10. I'm not going to get on it. And he laughed at me and said, you know, you've been reading too much. And I said, yeah, probably, but I'm just not going to get it. I'll get another flight somewhere. Um, so I didn't go. That flight lasted 31 seconds. It took off out of O'Hare and the left wing engine ripped off completely and landed on the runway as it was taking off. Uh, the plane rose up a few hundred feet and turned over and plowed into the ground, uh, killing everybody on board. Um, that was, uh, May 25th, 1979. And it's an interesting story because 
There's nothing magic about it. I didn't get on the plane because I had educated myself about the plane. So it's one of my favorite stories about how education can be good for you. Uh, just knowing something can be good for you. I think that's very much the case today with the pandemic going on. Knowing stuff can save your life. And knowing, yeah. knowing about how this virus behaves can save your life. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think, the, again, that, that is another great um, analogy for what we're talking about. Just because you know one structure doesn't mean you know the other. Just because right. one plane you you trusted was safe doesn't mean that the other one you got on was going to do the same thing. Right. Beautiful. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, so to the closing questions, you've written a, you know, a host of books, and I'll put them all on the webpage that accompanies this episode. Is there a book that you recommend written by someone else to other people? It can be related to what you, we've discussed today or something completely unrelated. <clears throat> well... <laughs> we live at a, on a place called Earth that you may be familiar with, or you may think you're familiar with it, but you're really not. And one of my hobbies is studying the Earth. It's a very interesting place. And, um, and so I read books about Earth that, that I find fascinating. One of them is by a guy named John McPhee. It's called Annals of the Former World. And it's a, a unique book in that it won two, two Pulitzer Prizes. This is very hard to do, but it did. Um, there's another book called The Story of Earth. And I can't remember the guy's name, but just a second and I'll get it. It's called The Story of Earth, and it's by Robert Hazen, H-A-Z-E-N. And it's essentially about the how the Earth came to be. So we, we have uh, four grandchildren, and I'm, I'm the science teacher for two of them. Um, they're not in school right now because of the pandemic. So I've spent the year teaching them science, and we started the year – by saying to them, so Emmett is nine and Cece is six, and we started the year by saying, ask us any question you want, and we'll answer it for you. And so the, the first question they asked was, where did Earth come from? So this little book, The Story of Earth, tells that story. It's a, it's a wonderful little thing to know about your home. Uh, where did it come from? So those are two books that I – value a great deal and have read more than once. Um, and that's kind of random, really, because I could just as easily have told you about books having to do with physics, for example, which is another hobby of mine. I read about physics all the time. Um, and in fact, I'm writing about it now because I'm working on a book about a place called the Santa Fe Institute, which was founded mostly by physicists. But, I mean, I've been collecting books all my life, so this number of books could get very large very quickly. 
<laughs> well, thank you so much because it's such a, a unique response to that question. And, and, you know, again, that's what I love asking. Whether it comes to this, I'll ask you about movies next, but it just gives this huge library. And if it's inspired people that have come on the show that I'm inspired by, well, then obviously that's, that's a book that's worth reading as well. So, so with that, what about a, a movie and or a documentary? Any of those two that you, you have topics that, um, excuse me, um, titles that you've loved? So, so, Quite a while ago, probably the early 90s, I worked as a screenwriter in Hollywood. Not for very long, but I did. I was invited there to work with a producer, and I went there, and I worked on screenplays a little bit. And I realized I didn't really like movies that much because the thing that I learned in Hollywood was that to create a good script, you have to create tension and jeopardy. This is what movies are all about. We're going to, as they say, I forget who said this, we're going to take the hero and we're going to put him up a tree, then we're going to throw rocks at him, and then we're going to get him down out of the tree. And that's the structure of a movie. And it, it is true if you watch Hollywood movies that that's what it is. Um, and I realized I've got my own tension and jeopardy. I don't need their tension and jeopardy. <laughs> I'm working on my own. <laughs> so... So I, I don't very often go to movies, um, but I've, there are movies that I have liked in my life. I love Martin Scorsese, um, probably all of his movies um, to some degree or another. I think uh, Goodfellas is, was a great movie. Um, I think uh, the Godfather series is, is wonderful. If kind of morally bankrupt, but who cares? This is America. Um, and there's some others that stand out. I mean, um, Chinatown is a great, great script. Um, and I'm sure I could think of more. I happen to like, I used, I used to teach writing at Northwestern University, and I taught specifically magazine writing. To, to kids who wanted to write long-form nonfiction. And I told them that this, what they wanted to do was more akin to a Hollywood movie than it was to anything else, because that's the, sh the shape that a piece of nonfiction like that should ha have. And if you, if you look at either one of my books of essays, you'll see that shape in these essays. And I believe that the movie Titanic is a really good illustration of that structure. And so I used the movie Titanic to show the students how to create that structure. And it's a real hokey Hollywood movie with all the cl cliches involved in a Hollywood movie, but that still makes it that that doesn't with that doesn't detract from its making a good teaching tool. Um, and so it kind of uh, the answer to your question depends a little bit on but on like. You want to know about a good movie, but good for what? So I've given you a couple of different choices there. Yeah. No, you have. Thank you so much. It's funny. I went to the Titanic Museum they have in uh, Orlando, and it was very sobering seeing the non-Hollywood version, the wall of lives that were lost and, you know, some of the tragic tales that came out of that. And again, I mean, another that ship is another perfect example of what we've discussed today, you know, complacency and that kind right. of thing. 
Um, all right. Well, the next question, is there a person that you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? I'm trying to think of somebody um, from the Santa Fe Institute who might be good for that. Um, I'm not coming up with something right off the top of my head here. Yeah, no problem. I mean, it'd be something you get back to me if, if it, you know. Yeah, I will. I will I will think through this and um and give you a couple of names. Brilliant. Thank you. And then while I remember, um there is a gentleman away I interviewed who's a Green Beret, an amazing man, name is Mike Glover. Um he's now created a company called Fieldcraft Survival. They do weapons training, they do survival training, do all kinds of things. And I think in our conversation I mentioned that we were gonna do this and he was like a school kid i just given an ice cream to so he is is dying to talk to you he has a, a huge you know um audience as well so sure, if, yeah. if that's something you'd be able to about for doing i'll connect you guys yeah absolutely what does he have a podcast um he does field field survival podcast i think is the name of it or field crafts excuse me field craft survival um, send him my, send him my info brilliant i'll connect you guys via email then fantastic yeah. All right. Well, then the last question before we make sure people know where to find you, what do you do to decompress? Well, uh, it's it's odd, but I, I mean, I read and I write both. <laughs> it's like a busman's holiday because um, in order to do my work, I read and I write. But then I switch. So like today, for example, before I talked to you, I was reading um, – the physics and chemistry about the origins of life on this planet. So I was reading very technical stuff for something that I'm writing uh, about the Santa Fe Institute, where a lot of that work has been done. Um, I'm finishing a book about the Santa Fe Institute. So I'm trying to comprehend, I'm not a physicist and I'm not a chemist. I'm trying to comprehend this really complex chemistry and physics. Um, but then after we hang up, I'm going to go read a novel. It just requires no effort. It's just like, you know, relaxation, and I'll probably go outside and do it because it's a nice day today. Um, so that's that's my kind of, like I say, busman's holiday. And then I might write a letter to my brother. I owe him a letter, um, which is my kind of writing um, relaxation. Beautiful. Well, thank you. I know, yeah, there's definitely a difference between reading research stuff, and I read a lot of, you know, biographies and things getting ready for some of these uh, conversations. But yeah, having that novel just to turn off, and they say prior to, to sleeping, read a, read a novel, don't read homework. Otherwise, your brain will turn on, not off. All right. Well, then the very last question, if people want to find out more about you, if they want to find the books, where to get them, where are the best places online for that? DeepSurvival.com is my website, easy to do. But my books are available anywhere that books are available. So you go to Amazon, you wanna buy Deep Survival, you can do that. If you go to my website, it'll give you choices of different places to buy the book. Like you can buy it from your local independent bookstore instead of Amazon, if you believe that Amazon is evil personified. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm not hard to find if you type my name into google you'll find me 
Brilliant. Well, Lawrence, I just want to say thank you so much. Thank you to Lionel again for connecting us. But I was not aware of your work prior to, to Lionel turning me on to it. And then when I started reading the books, obviously, as you can tell from the questions I had, there was so much to pull out that's pertinent to our profession. So many more questions I'd love to ask you, but for another day. Um, but thank you for being so generous and kind of lending your knowledge to the people listening. My pleasure. Thanks for having me here.